Well, my name is Brian, and uh, welcome to Redeemer. This morning we're going to be looking at Mark 14. Mark 14. Sometimes something familiar gets infused with new meaning. So I grew up in uh, Ellicott City, Maryland, the first 18 years of my life. And Ellicott City, Maryland is about 45 minutes north of Washington, D.C., and so as a family, it wasn't uncommon for us to go down and explore Washington, D.C., go down to the National Mall, and of course, there would be field trips and all sorts of different things to explore what was downtown in Washington, D.C. But it wasn't until later in life, I think I was in college when we took a Christian tour uh, of Washington, D.C., and I began to understand how the National Mall was laid out. And so you'll notice here uh, that in the middle of the National Mall, you have the Washington Monument. And uh, north of that, you've got the White House. And that same distance, equidistant from the Washington Monument to the White House down to the south here, you have the Jefferson Memorial. And then equidistant to the north, you have the Lincoln Memorial. But then exactly one and a half times that, down here, you've got the U.S. Capitol. And so the design of Washington, D.C. is that all of our legislation that happens at the Capitol is designed to happen at the foot of the cross. And that radically changed my understanding of the way Washington, D.C. was laid out. Sometimes something familiar gets infused with new meaning. So on Tuesday... Uh, we will have five teenage girls that belong to us, five teenage girls. And uh, we've got two off to college, so it's not complete chaos at our house, right? Um, but that also means that we've got two 15-year-olds at, at home, and they're both learning to drive. So there are lots of speeches that they get from me about learning to drive, but one of those speeches about, is about how the interstate system works. And so early on, I explained to them that all of those odd interstates, they run north-south. And all of those even interstates, they run east-west. And they're actually set up, right, so that they run from west to east. So it's five over here on the west coast, all the way over to 95 on the east coast. And then they run from south to north. So it's 10 down here at the very south, all the way up to 90 at the top of the country. And oh, by the way, the exits work the same way. So the miles, right, they start on, and each state, they start on the eastern, on the westernmost border. And they move uh, across to the far edge of the state. And then they start on the southernmost border. So if you're down here, you're at mile one. And then up here, you're at mile 360, and so forth and so on. So now, even though the girls have been riding on interstates all of their lives, now they understand the design, right, girls? Now they understand the design <laughs> of the interstate system. We've taken something familiar and infused it with new meaning. Well, this morning, Jesus is going to take something familiar and he's going to infuse it with new meaning. So in the Old Testament... The Passover was the paradigm for redemption and salvation as God delivers his people, right? And, and you remember the story, we rehearsed it this morning as we read Exodus chapter 12. God's people have been enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. 
And God raises up a deliverer, Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says to Pharaoh, God wants you to set my people free that they might worship me in the wilderness. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so a battle begins. And there are ten plagues. The Nile is turned to blood. There's fiery hail. There's darkness. There's frogs and flies and uh, gnats and locusts. And the final plague is the death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn. And so as God comes, he strikes down someone in every house, both in Pharaoh's house or the Egyptians' houses or the Israelite houses or even among the livestock. But he says to the Israelites, he says, if you take a one-year-old lamb that is without blemish and you sacrifice that lamb on the 14th day of the month and you take its blood and you put it on the doorposts and on the lintel, then when I come and I see the blood, I will pass over, and death will avert your household. And so the Israelites do this. The, 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 the Lord comes and he strikes down the firstborn. There's death in every household. The only question is whether you've taken refuge in the blood of the Lamb. And so God wins. Pharaoh loses and distraught. He lets Israel go and he sets them free to worship him in, uh, in the wilderness. And so they go off and they, and they go to worship. And this becomes the memorial day in Israel's history. And it comes with a meal. It comes with a Passover meal. And so they're supposed to have this meal over and over again as they're rehearsing God's deliverance. And this comes to define who God is. We have a God who rescues us from bondage and from slavery and who's going to take us into the promised land. It's a memorial day on their calendar. It's like uh, the President's Day meets Juneteenth, meets the 4th of July. And they're supposed to remember this every year. And so today in our passage, Jesus is going to take something familiar and he's going to infuse it with new meaning. Here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. You have been set free to worship the living God by the blood of the Lamb. You've been set free to worship the living God by the blood of the Lamb. And we're going to look at our passage this morning in three different sections. One way you could think about it is with notable objects. So in verses 12 through 16, you're going to see an upper room, an upper room. And then in verses 17 to 21, you're going to see a shared dish, a shared dish. And then in verses 22 through 25, you're going to see the bread, the cup, and the blood. But the way I want to assign for the purposes of preaching this passage this morning is by three phrases that are used in each of those sections. In section, uh, the first section, 12 through 16, I want you to see just as he told them. Just as he had told them. And then in verses 17 through 21, there's a question that's asked. Is it I? Is it I? 
And then finally, in verses 20 through, 22 through 25, we're going to look at my blood of the covenant. My blood of the covenant. Just as he had told them, is it I, my blood of the covenant. As we come to our passage this morning, I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open. We'll be going back to it frequently. And remember, when we come to our passage, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. So this week began on Sunday, uh, back in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus rode on the colt into Jerusalem, and you had the triumphal entry, and now we're on Thursday which, interestingly, is the 14th day of this particular month of Nisan, not to be confused with that plant up there. That's Nisan. <clears throat> so let, let's look here at, at Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, "'Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover?' And he said, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, for hundreds of years, you had your people practice a celebration of your deliverance, where you freed them from bondage. As we come now to understand what Jesus means as he takes this familiar thing and transforms it, I pray that this would shape the way we live our lives. I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus in him only. Amen. First of all, this morning, let's consider together in verses 12 through 16 just as he 
had told them, just as he had told them. Look with me there at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, first of all, I want you to notice here the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we read a little bit about it in Exodus chapter 12. It begins on the 14th day of the month, the same day as the Passover meal. And it lasts for seven days until the 21st of the month. And the idea of unleavened bread has two main ideas within it. One of those is this idea of removing sin from your life. You see, leaven is talked about in the New Testament as, as being equated to sin. Jesus says to the disciples in Mark chapter 8, verse 15, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. But this is also a meal of haste because the exodus is imminent. And then Jesus gives instructions to two disciples. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that these two disciples are Peter and John. And it's kind of a clandestine arrangement, right? That he says, okay, I want you to go and I want you to find the guy carrying water. Now, this would have been pretty easy in olden times because it was usually women who carried the water. He says, once you find him, I want you to follow him. Okay, don't say anything, just follow him. It's a little creepy uh, at this point. They're following him. They follow him all the way to the house. And then he says, walk into the house, right, and say to the, the master of the house, where is my guest room? The teacher says, where is my guest room? This is like a passcode, like, where is my guest room, right? And, but, but here's my question. Why is Mark including all of these details, the principle of selectivity says you can't say everything when you say anything or you end up saying nothing at all. We're always choosing what details we're going to include when we're telling a story. And remember, Mark is, a, is an apostle who is very, very sparse in the details that he's going to give out. So why does Mark include all of these details? Well, the pay dirt is there in verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. You see, Mark includes all of these details for the same reason he includes the details in Mark chapter 11. When he tells the two disciples to go and untie that colt and you know, then say this to those people. Why is he including those details? Because Mark wants you, wants his audience, to see Jesus as the master arranger, completely in control of all of the details. Now, maybe these details are kind of naturally prearranged. You know, Jesus knows a guy, and there's a side deal. Uh, or maybe this is part of Jesus' divine plan. But either way, the point is this. Jesus is in control, completely utterly in control. They found it just as he had told them. One of my favorite documentaries is Eero Dreams of Sushi. Uh, Eero owns a restaurant, and my understanding is you can still go there today in Tokyo, Japan. And if you like sushi, you'd need to make reservations six months in advance, and you get 20 minutes to eat 12 pieces of sushi, and you get to pay $300 to do it. 
Why? Because Eero is a master of details. The way the, the meat is selected, the way the meat is cut. In fact, at one point, his son is apprenticing because he wants to learn how to, how to make sushi. And so Eero tells his son, you have to make rice for seven years. So every day he goes in, right as the sun rises, leaves the sunset, goes in and he makes rice for seven years. Why? Because Eero is a master arranger. He wants to be in control of all of the details. Jesus here is a master arranger. They found it just as he had told them. Jesus is in control of all of the details. In verses 17 through 21, is it I? Is it I? So the Passover meal begins, and there's a shocking revelation. Jesus starts, and he says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, in Jewish culture, table fellowship was the highest form of intimacy. You didn't eat with just anyone. You ate with trusted friends. And in verse 20, it's not just any of the disciples. Jesus narrows it down. It's one of the 12. One who is dipping his bread into the same dish as Jesus. It's a shared dish. You see, this is the closest possible form of intimacy, and therefore it points to the deepest possible expression of betrayal. And notice the disciples' response here. I don't know what you'd be doing, but I'd probably lean over to like John and be like, I bet it's Peter, you know, like he's always getting in trouble. Or maybe it's Thaddeus or Alphaeus. They're never mentioned, right? Like, but that's not their response at all. It's actually a beautiful response. Look at, look at it there in verse 19. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him or one another, is it I? To say to him one after another, is it I? So they take a total depravity posture. They're not blame shifting. They stop and slow down and examine their own hearts. Is it I? Now, both Matthew and John, at this point in the narrative, they identify that Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus, but Mark doesn't. Mark leaves that out. Judas's name is omitted from this part of the passage. But it's not that Mark doesn't know, right, that Judas is the betrayer. When Judas is first introduced in the listing of the 12 in Mark chapter 3, it says, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And actually, just two verses before our passage in Mark 14 and verse 10, uh, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. But Mark leaves Judas's name off here. It's omitted. Why? I think Mark wants to let that haunting question of betrayal explore our own hearts. Is it I? Do you hear what Mark is saying to you this morning? How do you betray Jesus? 
You see, as the crucifixion came, all the disciples scattered. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. The ten others abandoned him. And if we search our hearts, I think that we'll find that we too deny and betray and abandon Jesus day after day, moment after moment. Is it I, Jesus? Is it I? But look at verse 21. Verse 21, for the Son of Man, Jesus says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. You see, Jesus understands the whole shape of his life through the Old Testament narrative, through types and analogies in the Old Testament. He would have read Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And he would have said, that's about me. Or Psalm 41, 9, even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus says, this is about me. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. Psalm 109, verse 6. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. Psalm 55, 20. Jesus knew that he would be betrayed by a close friend. This is part of God's sovereign plan. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But keep reading. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, as far as woes go, this is pretty serious, right? It's better that he had not been born. But the text here in one verse simultaneously affirms two things. On the one hand, it says that Jesus' betrayal is a part of God's sovereign plan. And on the other hand, it says Judas is responsible for his own actions. It simultaneously and unflinchingly says both. Now, some might say, well, if Jesus' betrayal is part of God's plan, right, then isn't Judas doing him a favor? He's just playing his role in the story. Right? How can he get the blame? But sovereignty and fatalism are two different things. You see, fatalism or determinism says that there is only one actor, and it's God. And he's the only one who acts, and everyone else is just a puppet or a robot. And therefore, God is the only one with responsibility. But sovereignty is a different thing. Sovereignty says that there are multiple wills, multiple purposes, multiple actions that are all working together. You see, Judas wasn't forced against his will. God's sovereign plan includes human choice and responsibility. Now, this can be a hard needle to thread, and so I've included two quotes as reflection quotes that are there in your bulletin that unpack this. One commentator says it this way, it is not as though God, in his sovereignty, coerced Judas to carry out the evil act of betraying Jesus. Rather, the sovereign God worked his will in and through the choices of his creatures. Judas did exactly what Judas 
wanted to do. But God brought good out of evil, redemption out of treachery. Another commentator says it this way, Mark sees no unfairness in the declaration that Judas is responsible for his action and that the script has been written. That Jesus must die does not detract from the historical particularity or from human culpability. Actual human beings make real decisions with earth-shaking consequences. Only in retrospect can we see that the reality of what is occurring is not exhausted within the realm of human intention, in, with, and under the human acts. God is at work. So here's what Mark wants you to see. Jesus is still arranging. He's still in control. Nothing takes him by surprise. Not only is he in control of the preparation for the Passover, he's also in control arranging the details of his own betrayal. You see, Jesus is arranging everything down to the very last detail. And do you know what that means? Mark is showing you a man on a mission. Jesus knows fully what he's getting into and nothing will stop him. He's in command. He's in charge. He's arranging. The last of the Mohicans came out in 1992 uh, and it's set before the Revolutionary War. Hawkeye is played by Daniel Day-Lewis. He's the adopted son of, uh, of a Mohican. And he falls madly in love with Cora, who's the daughter of a British colonel. And at one point, they're trapped behind a waterfall. And uh, their powder is wet. And the enemy is pressing in. And Hawkeye realizes that the only chance that he has to save her is to jump through the waterfall. And if he lives, he can come another day to rescue her. And then there's that great speech. Stay alive. No matter what comes, I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far, I will find you. And then he jumps through the waterfall. You see, Hawkeye has a great love. And he will stop at nothing to rescue her. And as Jesus arranges all of the details, he's saying, no matter what comes, no matter how far, no matter how long it takes, I will find you. But in order to bring the gospel into a crisper focus, you need to hold the sorrow of your betrayal. Is it I? up against the tenacity of Jesus' mission. Is it I? Yes, my friend, it is. But here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus saw your betrayal. He saw your denial. He saw your abandonment. And he still says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you. No matter what comes, No matter how far, no matter how long it takes, I will find you. You see, that's the deep, deep love of Jesus. And that's what Mark wants you to see. 
Is it I? In verses 22 through 25, we see my blood of the covenant. My blood of the covenant. So now we come to the Passover meal, and Jesus, according to custom, gets up and he explains the Passover. And here he's going to take something familiar, and he's going to infuse it with new meaning. There are three objects here uh, in verses 22 through 25. We have the bread in verse 22, the cup in verse 23, and the blood in verse 24. The bread, we've already seen that this is unleavened bread, symbolizing the removal of sin and the haste because the exodus is imminent. The cup in verse 23, apparently uh, in the practice of the Passover, there are actually four cups, and commentators say that this cup would be the third cup, which is the cup of salvation, the cup of salvation or the cup of redemption. But what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, the cup is almost exclusively associated with God's wrath. It's the cup of God's wrath. And that's the way Jesus usually talks about the cup. Jesus says to James and John, remember they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, and what does Jesus say? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? What what is he saying? Can you face the death that I'm going to face? It's the cup of God's wrath. And then later in Mark 14, we'll see that Jesus says, Oh, Lord, would you take this cup from me? But not my will, but your will be done. So how can this cup of salvation also be a cup of wrath? How how do those two things go together? You see, it's a cup of salvation for us because it's a cup of wrath for him. And he's going to drink that cup of wrath all the way down to the dregs, which leads us to the blood in verse 24. Now, Jesus uses the phrase, the blood of the covenant, And when he uses that phrase, he's taking us back to Exodus chapter 24 that we read this morning. So God, uh, in Exodus chapter 20, gives the Ten Commandments to Israel. And Israel sees the holiness of God on Mount Sinai and is terrified. And they say, we want a mediator. And God gives them Moses to be a mediator. And then Moses writes the book of the covenant. And the book of the covenant from Exodus 21 to 23 are laws that take those principles and the Ten Commandments and apply them to everyday life. Right? So he writes this book of the covenant and gives it to the people and reads it to them in their hearing, like we, like we read this morning. And the people say, all that God has commanded, we will do. And so God then does something very unusual. He has Moses kill oxen and put the blood in a basin. He takes half of the blood and he throws it against the altar. And he takes the other half of the blood and he throws it on the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant. Well, what's going on there? Why is Moses throwing blood on the people and on the altar? Well, it's because God represented by the altar, and the people are entering into a covenant. And the penalty for breaking the covenant is death, which is represented by blood. That's why it's the blood of the covenant. And both parties are taking an oath. 
They're saying, may what happened to me, may, may what happened to the oxen happen to me if I break the covenant. May my blood be poured out if I break the covenant. Oh, but Israel is going to break the covenant again and again and again. And that's why just a couple chapters later in Leviticus 1 through 7, there are all of these sacrificial laws that are given for when you sin unintentionally. And then you have the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Right? Blood is shed again and again to cover sin. But that blood didn't take away sin. It only caused death to pass over for a time. You see, everyone in the Old Testament would have known Hebrews 10.4, even though it hadn't been written yet, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Why? Because the covenant that they entered into in Exodus 24 demanded their blood for covenant breaking. You see, in Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, there's blood shed that covers the high priest, and there's blood shed that covers the holy place. But when it comes to the intentional sins of the people, the high priest comes and signifies those sins and imputes them to a scapegoat. And the scapegoat is not killed. The scapegoat is led outside the camp because the sins of the people would be dealt with later outside the camp, right? So they knew that the blood of bulls and goats would not pay the penalty for their sins because the sins of the people ultimately demanded their own blood. Now, come back to the Passover meal. Jesus is serving the Passover meal If the first Passover was 1446 B.C., according to 1 Kings 6.1, this means that Israel would have been practicing this meal for almost 1,500 years when they remembered. They were a little delinquent on that part. But for about 1,500 years, year after year, right, generation after generation, down through the ages, They were rehearsing their salvation. They were remembering their deliverance. They were saying, we're delivered out of death and out of bondage by the blood of the Lamb, by the Lamb who was slain, by the Lamb who died in our place. You know, Mark includes an interesting detail here in verse 12. It's a detail left out of the other Gospels. And on the first day of unleavened bread, and here it is, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Why does Mark include that detail? We've talked about three objects in our text. There's the bread in verse 22, the cup in verse 23, the blood in verse 24. But do you know what's missing at this celebration? Do you know what Mark omits? There's no lamb. Why? Because Jesus is the Lamb. And now Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He's saying, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of that blood, year after year, generation after generation, was just a symbol. 
It was just a shadow. It was all pointing to the final once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. Paul says, Behold, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. You see, Jesus takes something familiar and he infuses it with new meaning. Jesus is saying, you've been set free from bondage. You've been set free from death. You've been set free to worship the living God by the blood of the Lamb. But oh, brothers and sisters, this isn't just about our past. This is also about our future. You see, Jesus' first truly statement in verse 18, it was a note of sadness. He said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one of you who is eating with me. But Jesus' second truly statement is a note of joy. It's there in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see, this is a promise. Jesus is saying, I'm going to have this meal again with you in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, my blood of the covenant doesn't just get you out of Egypt. My blood takes you all the way home. My blood takes you to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And you see, every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, now on the first day of the week, because our calendar has, be, has been reset to, we are living into this promise by faith. That one day, when the final dawn breaks and the shadows flee away, the dim, tattered veneer of this world will be pulled back and we'll find ourselves home in the kingdom of God. And all of the deepest longings of our heart will finally have their answer and we'll see him face to face. And we'll sit down to the wedding supper of the Lamb, to the feast that every other feast in this life has whispered of and anticipated. And then, then the real story will begin. You see, you've been set free to worship the living God, by the blood of the Lamb. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Oh, Father, how often we forget the good news that is practiced in the Lord's Supper that was anticipated by the Passover. Would you remind us now in this hour of the reality that your son came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May the fullness of that revelation echo in our memory in this hour that we might be transformed more and more to the image of Jesus. I ask it in his name. Amen.